1: And Ukraine continues with no sign of military or diplomatic victory for either side. And certainly no chance of peace. Almost a year into Russia's war on Ukraine and a top Ukrainian official says Moscow is planning another big call-up of troops in the months ahead. Up to half a million additional troops for operations in the east and south. Ukraine regained much of the territory lost in the initial weeks of the war. But January saw Russia making gains as it concentrates its effort on the key city of Bakhmut. Ukrainian soldiers defending Bakhmut enter the fray knowing they are outnumbered. And more Russian fighters are on the way. Russia's advances in that area have been spearheaded not by its army, but a private military group.
0: Heavy artillery armor, men sent in waves to their death. It sees the forces of a nation-state pitched against a private army, the Wagner Group. Their tactics are brutal, they are deprived of any moral, and they are simply, they simply have a target.
1: Kill or get killed. The Wagner Group is led by Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yevgeny Prigozhin, They call him Putin's chef. Ukraine's army says it gunned down as many as 200 Russian mercenaries from the Wagner group in a recent attack. But Russian forces are gaining ground as they push to surround the city. Angus Lampkin is an expert in humanitarian civil-military coordination and in international relations. He joins me in the studio to discuss this mercenary group Wagner and what it does throughout the world. Angus, what is the Wagner Group?
0: It's described as a, a private military company or private military contractor. And effectively, what is it? It's a, it's a corporation uh, that offers its services for hire on a profit-making basis. And it provides services that are effectively comparable to what a military uh, might do. So as opposed to a government um organizing itself to have a ministry of defense and an armed forces um with all of the responsibilities that entails in turn in employing people and having buildings and um equipment for them to use so this this then this private military contractor sits outside of the of the government and it um it achieves or or not um but it has this degree of separation. Now, the modern military relies on um, on private contractors to a huge degree. So all countries, um, all modern countries are effectively looking at 70% of their budgets are going to private sector actors. But these aren't to deliver what might be described as military services. These are much more in the area of support services. So this is like catering, like um Information and communications technology. But what we're seeing with the Wagner Group is effectively it's a company that's saying, okay, we need to attack this village. We need to. we need to control this territory we need to bomb these buildings we need to eliminate uh, these enemy targets and that they have the capability uh, to do that now this type of uh, function didn't begin in Russia we see it mostly in in the recent past with the United States uh, in order to uh, achieve the massive military spread that it had across Iraq and Afghanistan it needed extra people so it contracted in a whole variety of um, service providers to do this and some people will have heard of DinoCore and uh, Blackstone and uh, Greystone etc that have been quite controversial and have um, and have uh, been quite problematic in the sense, in terms of breaching uh, uh, human rights, etc. Um, but what we see with uh, the Russian use of the Wagner Group to do this is that uh, you know if we see Russian, the Russian political accountability and Russian political processes and Russian objectives as being uh, more problematic uh, than what we have um, as per the United States, and I say that in quite a significant way, then the Wagner Group being paid. You know, hard cash uh, to achieve what are effectively military objectives uh, is a is a new phenomenon that we're seeing in international relations, and it's being deployed specifically in the Ukraine, but it is also um, uh, working for Russian foreign policy elsewhere.
1: Now, we've always had mercenaries at one scale or the other. Um, the Iraq and Afghanistan war took that further in, in terms of military contractors. But again, those military contractors had set things. They weren't used as assault troops. They didn't seem to have access to aircraft, armored vehicles, and certainly not artillery. Whereas the Wagner group seems to have all of that. Um they also didn't lead the assault. That is, this could be the first time that a, a group, their private military company, is literally leading, spearheading a, a, a war and in mass battles. That that's quite new in military terms, of course.
0: Well, uh, new in modern military terms, absolutely. But we go to back a couple of hundred years to the East India Company, and we see we certainly see parallels. But I think you're absolutely right not to focus um uh, so much on that because while Many uh, military contractors working for the United States are armed. They've tended to get more involved in a defensive basis when they've been um, firing shots, um, using um, using explosives, etc. It's been done on a more of a defensive basis. Whereas your absolute, what is what we see happening now in Ukraine and indeed elsewhere is that you have this private military contractors that are. Tasked with achieving what would have been more traditional military objectives, and the Russian uh, government has it as a significant degree to which it can have plausible deniability. So it can say that this either that this wasn't desired on behalf of the the Russian authorities. Th- this has not been. This is not the responsibility of the Russian government. So I th- think that. Using that as a vehicle was very important in Syria, particularly. I think we are now seeing the Wagner group becoming a more established political entity both in Russia and in the other um theaters of conflict where we where we see it um being active. But I think this is the this was particularly for these more clandestine operations, that there was an ability of the Russian government to say, Well, that wasn't us, or if it was um, Even if we are paying them, it was they were doing it for a different reason, for a different contractor, and they could say they could deny having responsibility for it, and yet at the same time they could be using these actors to achieve uh, objectives that aligned with what they wanted to do. And I think this is this is very important when we see that you know we you know the modern military is obliged to follow a strict um, you know international law. Whereas the you know the, the private military contractor has a good amount of wriggle room to either deny it itself, or indeed for its employer to deny that it was its intention, or indeed that it, it you know it has any um, direct responsibility for it.
1: The I suppose the leader of the Wagner Group of the or the owner of the Wagner Group is Yevgeny Prigozhin. What can you tell us about him?
0: He first appears as a. A company owner running a hot dog stand in St. Petersburg in 2016. He's the current leader of the Wagner Group. He's not necessarily the, or, the original leader, but that is quite a murky past that I don't think has been fully unpicked uh, by any of the, the you know the academics and researchers looking into this. So he moves from having one hot dog stand to a massive chain of restaurants in St. Petersburg, uh, economically doing very well. He then moves to being the supplier of food services to a a variety of Russian um, uh, government uh, state entities. And then he becomes known as um, Vladimir Putin's uh, chef. So he's... uh, Got a close relationship uh, with Vladimir Putin. He's demonstrated an ability to, you know, as opposed to having money spent through uh, the the civil service or the government infrastructure to deliver what they need as a as a private entity. And effectively, what he's done is he's expanded. Expanded from there and said, "What else do you want me to take responsibility for? What else do you want me to do?" And this, um, you know, this financial relationship has grown uh, significantly, and so we see that the to-do list of Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin has grown. Uh, you know, significantly over recent years, both in terms of the the amount of money changing hands and the complexity of the tasks, um, to the extent that he's becoming a significant political political actor in Russia itself, and it's even he's even discussed as being a potential replacement for Putin in the future, or having a or even you know, a rival. Yeah, uh, even a rival, which
1: could mm. which could change a lot of things. Now, I mean, but let's look at this. Yevgeny Prigozhin has the ability. We t- we were speaking about the law mm. and where the law ends, but he, he now has the ability to march into a prison, to free rapists and murderers, and to take uh, for a six month period to take them to the front. And if they survive that, um, they're they're let out. I mean, that is. That is unprecedented, certainly in 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 the world as we know it today. So I mean, that that seems it uh, seems to be an extremely powerful man.
0: So this is a historic military tactic that professional militaries of the modern day have very much tried to eradicate. Now, of course, that. You know, when we describe the modern military we expect this modern military to be answerable to a de- democratically elected Houses of Parliament which should be able to oversee, manage and ensure accountability. But at the same time we don't see that functioning uh, particularly well. What's happening seemingly with the Wagner Group, it's being used as a way to reduce the burden on the prison system and indeed enable the release of people that really have you know, appalling uh, criminal records in order for them to be to fight, and in, you know this—you know—the idea of being told, as a, as a, you know, a convicted criminal, that if you fight and risk your life for six months, that you can achieve this, then that's really quite an incentive. And I think this is a, an important difference between the lives and experiences of regular militaries and the lives and experiences of um, of mercenaries. If mercenaries feel that by risking for a short period of time that they can free themselves of this that's a massive incentive to move forward and take risks and try and achieve uh, what you're being asked to achieve and this again we see the increase in the use of the Wagner Group in the Ukraine in part based on the fact that Russian troops have failed uh, to meet the expectations of their particularly their political commanders we see the Russian generals changing uh, on a regular basis and so the Wagner Group's being used as a kind of different modality, different incentive structures, um, certainly reduced accountability, different types of people involved. And then we see this, um, you know, the brutality of war and the willingness to be brutal in executing that war. We see that coming out. And I think this is, you know, again, this you know, is deeply troubling what's happening in Ukraine now.
1: And I mean it depends on your point of view. Some I know people who are convinced mm. that Russia was always in control of this war, and other mm. people convinced that Russia's significantly in the back foot. As you mm. know, it's very difficult to say what's going on in a war. Mm. We know Russia took an incredible amount of Ukrainian territory very quickly. We know Ukraine won a significant yeah. amount of territory and put Russia in the back foot. But they seem to have picked a point in Nas mood, and they've thrown in mm. they're throwing in, in the classic I don't want to say in a propaganda terms in terms of the like human waves, but they seem to be concentrating this this, this humanity on this point. And it seems to be, frankly, working, mm. albeit in a brutal sense.
0: So there's, there's, two, there's two dynamics at play here. One is the, you know, the incentivization of the mercenaries to achieve. And then on the other hand, this the juxtaposition of this with the standard Russian troops and saying, well, look what these guys are doing. Why aren't you doing it? And then if you think about all the generals will be going to Putin as well and saying, look, we need resources, we need more money in order to do what you're asking us to do. And Putin's then got a choice. He's got a, you know, he's got a private um, provider that's saying they can deliver results for money. And then the generals are also asking for money for things. And this is then, you know, the, his facilitating competition between these two groups um, to try and encourage them to be more uh, effective in waging the war that they're waging.
1: Which is a classic political tactic. <laughs> and it's also a classic political tactic in terms of... Spots, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, do you think uh, that Wagner and Prigozhin could become a political force uh, in Russia? And is that maybe one of the dynamics that Putin will have to put up with if he pays for an army to rival his own legal army? That he he may be he may be making a classic mistake.
0: So, uh, to what extent it moves so far within Russia as a way that you have a an opposing force that is um you know, organized, armed, and could potentially depose Putin or indeed confront uh, the Russian security forces and facilitate a a coup d'etat. Like, I think Putin will be watching this very carefully. He will be looking to ensure that the majority of the activities of the Wagner group are undertaken in a way that he retains control. That doesn't mean that he'll necessarily be able to do this. So I would see this as being one of his... Approaches to the conflict but not the entirety I don't think we're going to see the entire privatisation uh, of conflict um, through this process uh, but at the same time it is very likely to increase and the more that they show themselves capable of achieving these victories and that the more that the various accountability mechanisms both within Russia and there are some uh, but of course the international accountability mechanisms then we would ask ourselves to what extent we are hearing of the violations um, of the violations uh, in, a, in a sufficient way as to ensure uh, an appropriate international reaction uh, to what's taken place. There are certainly incidents that we've, you know, we've that our your human rights monitors have picked up on, the media have picked up on. Um, but to what extent we are really witnessing a, you know, significant, um, what you might say, diversion from what would be. More standard international military activity through the use of the Wagner Group, or do they mean, or do they remain somewhat comparable uh, to the Russian military in terms of how they fight? Because the human rights violations have been taking place from the beginning of this conflict. You know, we we see sexual violence, um, we see torture. All of these things have taken place, and the I and the. It's not clear to me that the Wagner Group is significantly more responsible for these um, than the, the regular Russian military, but very much in terms of the makeup of the personnel, they, that would be a, a very serious risk uh, that, we should be, um, that we should be keen to look at some breaking news, the UN Human Rights Office has issued a damning statement describing the war in Ukraine as a horror story of violations against civilians in which respect for international law has been tossed aside.
1: Let's you leave you, Ukraine behind. Hmm. Let's look at the at, at some of the of the of the, the facts on the ground in in places like Africa and Syria, hmm. where Wagner are concerned. So it's not just uh, involved in the Ukrainian war; they're involved in West Africa and Syria, and they have been for quite a while.
0: So I think they it's in some ways it's some it's. More straightforward to understand. So in Syria, I think where there's a long-standing uh, involvement of the Wagner Group. In fact, you know the government of Syria is a partner of Russia. Uh, How does Russia provide support uh, to Assad? Um, And so the options are: you deploy regular forces, um, or you can send your private, you know, your private, privately contracted uh, military force in support of the of of the of the Syrian government. So Russia said, "Okay, we will pay for them, and then Assad will use them." And as part of Russia's regional or global strategy, this fits because it wants its ally to be in Syria as opposed to an alternative, i.e., uh, it doesn't want to see the government of Assad losing to the Free Syrian Army, which is generally viewed as being supported by the West. We move then to the uh, to the Sahel, where we have I think three particular countries of focus, namely. Which is
1: basically just? Could you describe that term to our listeners?
0: So the the Sahel is the the area in Africa which sits just below the the Sahara Desert. So it's moving from the the west all the way across uh, to the east, and I think it's a it describes a. It's an Arabic word with a, a geographical description that describes not complete desert, but an arid landscape. So it's kind of a belt of land uh, that crosses um, Africa. So when, you know, on the west, you have you know, Senegal and Mauritania moving across. You have Mali and Burkina Faso onto Chad, Niger. So these types of countries, and then moving all the way across to, to Ethiopia in the east. Now, there's three three particular countries of interest here, which are Central African Republic, um, Burkina Faso, and um, Mali. Now, this was the traditional French backyard, i.e. since colonial times, there's been a long-standing relationship between the government of France and these countries. There has been the principal security support has come from France. But what I'm about to describe is effectively a pivot of the relationship these country, these three countries have from their relationship with France towards a relationship with Russia and so at the political level this is um you know this is a a diplomatic relationship where they share objectives they share you know they share a political understanding but in terms of how that's facilitated particularly from a security perspective it's the Wagner group that's deployed in these countries with significant security um defence capabilities in order to shore up uh, the government's approach. And and um, concurrently, you have a French departure. So the French militaries are now no longer active in these three countries. But deeper than that, my principal concern in this is that Russia isn't so interested in the geopolitical realities of the Sahel. So it saw an opportunity here with the frustrations of the populations of these three countries in terms of their inability uh, to face down rebellions, their inability to face down Islamic State, Al-Qaeda and a variety of other radical extremist groups and it's gone in and said we can help you Um, the government of bought into the idea, but to what extent Russia has the same strategic objectives for stabilising these countries and ensuring that, uh, you know, people can live uh, a normal life. You know, Russia is coming in with significant military support, but very little development uh, support, very little Support for civil society, for humanitarian, uh, for humanitarian systems, you know—support that you know meets the needs of real people. Um, so this concern is that you—it's know, very keen for France to feel, but isn't so interested in these governments themselves achieving uh, what they want, which is um, you know control over the entirety of the territory.
1: I I take on board what you're saying, mm. Angus, but but there will be people out there, and maybe mm. not not huge in huge numbers, mm. but they will say, for example, there will be people saying, "Well, hold on, this seems like Russia." Uh, really leading the fight against imperialism against the, across the world. Yes, I read that on Twitter. Um, uh, and helping governments stand up for themselves and getting rid of the imperialist powers and helping these countries to be free. That's what people will say. And they'll also say, and this is pure moral relativism, mm-hmm. well, who is France? Mm. To enforce their corrupt democratic system, mm-hmm. people not everyone agrees with the idea of democracy, and they'll also say, "and your liberal versions of human rights." Whereas Russia will come in and say, "Don't worry about liberalism and, and the rights of the individual, and don't worry about democracy. There are other things more important." So that's what people will say. I think there'll people there'll be moral, relatives out, moral relativists out there who will say. Yes, this is what truly freeing yourself from imperialism means. It also means throwing off the shackles of these European ideas, such as democracy and liberalism. And if Russia is the person to help us through the Wagner Group, well, they're leading the fight against world imperialism. Is that pure ideology or, or, or is there a point there?
0: I think the, there is absolutely an obligation on behalf of the the West, as it sees itself, uh, to critique its actions and to consider uh, to what extent it's working in the best interests of the you know, the populations of these countries, as opposed to working towards its own interests. And I think the you know the report is mixed in that sense. I think the, all you know the mirror should absolutely be held up to. You know the Western countries that have had e- experienced economic hegemony uh, for the last couple of hundred years at least, and their role, the morality of what they've done, should be considered. But they, you flip it over, and you see that Russia is an imperial power in itself. You know the imperial Tsar of Russia governed a huge swathe of territory. Um, you move into the USSR, we can see that as a it might be a different type of empire, uh, but it's still a type of empire. And then we see Russia now playing a you know a key role in the in the stands in, in East Asia. Uh, we see it active in the conflict in Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh, and it still has its understanding of a sphere of influence and where it wants to extend its power. So I would say that if you critically analyse um, you know Western colonial countries and Russian colonialisms, you'll find a lot of comparatives that I think are worth exploring. And this idea, I think Russia has come to some of these countries with the message they th- need to throw off uh, the yoke of imperialism. Uh, but I would ask the question to what extent they have done that cynically and to what extent they have simply asked for this pivot towards themselves. So I think it's, the you know, the criticism of one actor doesn't necessarily uh, correspond with a, um, you know, a mollification of the other. I think you know Russia is far from perfect. Even if we are, we can sympathise with some of the the criticisms of the West, and that is you know a, you know a very clear issue in terms of how um, geopolitical relations are, are taking place internationally. I, I think it's actually in some ways how we see Russia and how it's actually useful from a Western perspective to to see Russia's actions as being not incomparable to our own when we project power. As we projected power in Afghanistan, as we did the same in Iraq, Russia's projection into Ukraine. To what extent can we see that as being comparable uh, to what we've done, and it being in in a problematic sense? So, we 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 shouldn't be um, looking at this as a black and white issue. In terms of the West is you know is somehow perfect, uh, Russia is the you know the evil, and I will say this imperial actor. I think there is everyone uh, you know has. Uh, uh, you know, it has an obligation uh, to look at their own actions and to consider how, how appropriate they were uh, from a moral perspective and also from a pragmatic perspective.
1: Angus Lamkin, thank you very much for your thoughts. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips were from Channel 4 News, France 24, AFP, CNN, Sky, and Al Jazeera.